This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. We are very fortunate to have on the line with us Steve Mitchell. He is president of Mitchell Research and Communications. He is one of Michigan's best-known pollsters for decades. Steve Mitchell, thanks for being with us on The Political Insider. Bill, I always love to be with you. Uh, uh, you're the most respected, the pundit in Michigan, and so it's fun to talk uh, politics and other issues with you. Well, you're, you're buttering me up here. Uh, I don't deserve it, but let me just start out by saying this. Um, you have recently achieved something. Honestly, I've got real doubts this has ever happened before. You have been elevated to the chairmanship of the board of directors of the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, which is the largest business organization in the state. And simultaneously, you are now the chairman of the board of trustees of Northern Michigan University, your alma mater. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Well, that that's <laughs> that's a heavy lift. How are you going to have time to do any polling or run your business? You're you're going to be running all over the place. Well, that's that's a question my wife uh, keeps asking me as well. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, it it is just a tremendous honor to have been elected to both of these positions, uh, especially uh, here in the latter part of my career. Um, I've been on the chamber board. I'm on my second term now, and on the. I was also on the Michigan uh, Chamber Foundation Board, and Governor Snyder appointed me to the board at Northern uh, uh, seven years ago to so to spend my last year chairing the school uh, from which I graduate. Board of Trustees is just uh, a great honor, and uh, I just you know I think it's 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 a great honor, Bill. But what you have to do is do something when you get the job, and I think uh, in terms of Northern Michigan University. Uh, what the board has done during the seven years I've been there has been extremely uh, consequential. In December, uh, when I was vice chair and helped uh, usher through a package of eight new initiatives to keep Northern uh, growing, uh, it was the most consequential day in the seven years I've been on the board. So uh, now my job this year is to do the, the tough part of making sure all of those initiatives are implemented uh, properly. Northern was only one of two schools in the state of Michigan that had a higher enrollment in the fall of 2019 than it did in the fall of 2018. Uh, And it's because we've had such a great administration. We've had such a great board. We've had such a great faculty and staff uh, that that really uh, Northern has been able to really excel, excuse me, during some really tough times in terms of uh, schools in Michigan and all over the country. Yeah, absolutely. There are problems in a declining enrollment in some of our public universities, no question. I'm really glad to hear Northern Michigan comparatively is doing so well. Let me ask you, how many people are on the board of trustees at Northern Michigan, and how many of them are still on the board who were there when you were first appointed seven years ago? In Michigan, uh, each of the 15 university uh, 15 universities are autonomous. They all have eight-member boards. Uh, the three large universities, Wayne State, the University of Michigan, and Michigan State, uh, have elected boards 
the other 12 have appointed boards. And what happens is every two years, uh, coinciding with the election year, um, two new members are elected, and then um, two, two others are rotated off the board, term limited off the board. So you always have at least six members who have been there for two years. And so uh, a year ago, the uh, last two members that were there when I first came on the board uh, left. So, uh, And actually, uh, I was appointed with Dr. Thomas Zurbuchen, uh, who is now one of the top five guys at NASA and who had to resign to take that position. So um, I'm the only one left on the uh, northern board uh, uh, that was there when we had a president other than Fritz Erickson, who was, uh, was on, on, on whose search committee I sat and who we uh, chose to be president back in 2014. Is there any term limits for board members on the Northern Michigan University Board of Trustees? No, there are, there are no term limits on any of these boards. Uh, you can serve as long as you can get a governor to appoint you or the people to elect you. Um, with, a, with a Democratic uh, governor uh, in office now, uh, since I'm a Republican, I won't get reappointed by Governor Whitmer. Um, uh, there have been some instances, in fact, 10, 20 years ago, where board members have served three or four eight-year terms. Um, and there are some who are in their second term uh, now. But Governor Snyder, for the most part, uh, did not appoint people to a second term. He gave them eight years on the board. Is there any requirement that there be some kind of partisan balance on these boards? I mean, beyond the three research universities that you mentioned, Michigan State University, University of Michigan, Wayne State, they're elected on a partisan ticket. But on these 12 other public university boards like Northern Michigan, is there any requirement at all that there be any partisanship necessarily considered by the appointing governor? No, there's none at all. Um, But the bottom line is that, uh, look, the longest we had uh, any governor in this state was uh, Bill Milliken, 14 years, and John uh, Engler for 12 years, and now with term limits, you're only going to have uh, a governor for eight years. And what we've seen is that we go back and forth every eight years between Democrats and Republicans. So uh, there is no uh, real uh, partisan. You, you get a partisan split um, because uh, governors change. Now, uh, up until um, we had a vacancy created because of the death of a board member, or we would still have um, all eight members of this board uh, being Snyder appointees. We have one uh, Whitmer appointee now uh, because of uh, two vacancies. One, uh, one board member died, Travis Weber, right after he was appointed. Another a terrific woman, Bridget Summers, was appointed by Governor Whitmer. Uh, she moved to Minneapolis and had to resign. And now Donna Murray Brown, who is, again, a, a, just a, a tremendous appointment uh, by Governor Whitmer, is uh, serving as a Whitmer appointee with seven uh, seven Republicans. But I can tell you, when I got on the board, uh, the board was split four and four, and never has partisanship entered into any decisions that the board, that our board has made. Uh, we all get along tremendously well. We spend five or six days up in Marquette five times a year. We, we are good friends, and, and it was never a matter of talking partisan politics. We all do what's best for the university based on, uh, on, on our own backgrounds and not on our political party background. That's terrific. Uh, I think that's a lesson a few people in Lansing could learn. <laughs> how to, Can't we just all get along? I'm glad to hear that. Let me ask you, um, how 
big is the student enrollment at Northern Michigan right now? Our enrollment is about 7,600. And you say it's one of only two that actually increased enrollment, at least at the undergraduate level in the 2019-20 academic year. Um, has it? Is this the highest? That, that's not. That's that's not just. Uh, that's not just undergraduate. That's total enrollment of the university. Our total enrollment, graduate and undergraduate, increased as did the University of Michigan. A lot of other schools uh, dropped. In Central dropped ten percent. Uh, so there's been some major drops in enrollment uh, as a result of declining high school graduates. So when you say 7,600, that includes graduate students as well, right? That's correct, yes. And out of the 7,600, how big is the undergraduate enrollment? You know, that's uh, you know, probably 6,000 of it, 1,500 graduate students. Yeah. Well, uh, that's tremendous. What do you attribute your success in attracting people to come to northern Michigan? We have... Just a great staff. Um, Northern Michigan was the first university in the state of Michigan to do a public-private partnership on building dormitories. Uh, we built $75 million worth of new dorms with a public-private partnership so that we didn't have to use any funding from the state of Michigan. We didn't have to have a capital outlay project. We put in 1,200 new uh, new beds, and we knocked down, uh, you'll appreciate this, Bill, we knocked down... Uh, four dorms that were built uh, when I was a sophomore in college and that were the new dorms <laughs> when I when I came to Northern Michigan yeah University, listen so we I got to demolish them okay that is fascinating we'll pick up on it we got to take a short break we'll be back in a minute with Steve Mitchell the political insider with Bill Ballinger on MDN Here's Bill. We have returned with Steve Mitchell, who is president of Mitchell Research and Communications, but he's also chairman of the Board of Trustees at Northern Michigan University and chairman of the Board of Directors for the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. We're talking about how Northern has been able to keep its student population so robust compared to many of the other public universities in Michigan. Steve, you were making the point that what, you demolished some of the newer buildings uh, to build what? Uh, new, Still newer buildings or what? Uh, no, we knocked, down, we knocked down old buildings. When I say they were the new dorms, those were new dorms 50 years ago. <laughs> they were like the Gulag Archipelago. They were so old and they were in rough shape. But we replaced those. But we, passed, we, we, we brought on board a medicinal plant chemistry program, the first in the country, studying cannabis and other uh, uh, types of plants. We brought on a frost program, which is a program where we study the decomposition of, of bodies, which means you're the only one in North America uh, anywhere where there's a cold weather climate to study the decomposition. So we get police officers from all over the northern part of the country coming to, to Northern Michigan University. Uh, the plant chemistry program added an additional 250 students to our enrollment. Uh, that's the difference between being up and down. So we took bold initiatives, we passed them, and we had strong leadership. So uh, we've done a great deal. But let's talk politics now, Bill, because that's on everybody's mind. Well, we can do that. First, let me just ask you, though, about the Michigan Chamber Board of Directors. Yes. How long have you been on that? Uh, I served a six-year term, was termed off. I've been back now for three years. I was on the executive uh, committee last year, and they, the uh, board elected me uh, 
uh, chairman in September of last year to serve from January 1 to December 31 of this year. So is this your last year on the board, or are you going to be on the board after that, but maybe not as uh, chairman? I will be on the board after that as the immediate past chair. I will continue to be on the executive committee, uh, which I've been on now for a couple of years. Okay, well, let's get to politics, because that's your métier, as the French would say, with your polling. What do you see going on right now? Mass confusion out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the other night I was going down into my, excuse me, my basement to do some exercises. I thought I'd just turn on the Democratic debate for half an hour and was riveted. And what a food fight. It was uh, perhaps the best debate I've ever seen. Boy, they were just going after each other. Uh, It was an incredible debate. Yeah, I'm not sure sure Mike Bloomberg had the greatest, uh, you know, initiation into the process you could ask for, right? No, he certainly didn't. Uh, I think it was a smart move for him to do it uh, before Nevada. He's not on the ballot there. He can argue, well, uh, I didn't take a, uh, I didn't take a drubbing because of it. Um, he will, however, be on the ballot. I think in South Carolina. So. Uh, well, I don't think he's going uh, to be on the ballot. No, he's not. That one. No, he's he's not, not. Be on the ballot. It's not till Super Tuesday. That's Super right. Tuesday, just after that. But there is a debate uh, in South Carolina. I think next. Tuesday. And so, you know, I think what you said is very on point that if he's going to have a bad performance, he's got it out of the way early and at least he knows what to expect from now on, right? Yes, but I think the problem is there was a huge audience, 33 million people watched that debate. (laughs) And uh, when you look, I've been in politics for a long time. I have never ever seen anything that comes close to the spending he's doing all over the country i mean it's unbelievable well do you Absolutely think do you think it's going do you think it's going to work i mean if he lays an egg as an actual candidate that people see as you say 33 million you know you and i have both seen races in the past maybe it's at the local level or a state level where somebody has spent a heck of a lot of money dick devos spent a lot of money to be governor in 2006 and they end up getting shellacked i mean sometimes people just tune you out well i think and i just in terms of dick devos um the voter turnout in 2006 was an aberration there was a tremendous democratic turnout that we did not have um Dick Postumas, four years earlier, lost by 3.5% and got fewer votes than Dick DeVos. And Dick DeVos got walloped by double digits just because of the incredible turnout. But in this particular instance, I think what's got to be disconcerting for Bloomberg is having spent all that money, he really did lay a leg, an egg, and he really got uh, eviscerated by... Uh, Elizabeth Warren, as well as a lot of the other Democrats on the stage. And, you know, he still had not been gaining, he'd been gaining traction slowly but surely. He had been moving up. But boy, everybody knows who Mike Bloomberg is. They've seen their ad. You cannot be alive in Michigan and not seen an ad on TV, not seen an ad or listen to an ad on the radio, not seen some social media post by someone or been, uh, had your door knocked. And so he still wasn't gaining a lot of ground. I think that debate is going to put a lot of questions into the minds of voters. And 
I think it's going to pose a real problem. Before that debate, I would have said this is a two-way race between Sanders and, and Bloomberg. Now I'm not so sure. Yeah, I think you make a very good point. In other words, you're not convinced at this point that the spending, for instance, here in Michigan, that he's going to do between now and March 10th when we have our primary is going to be able to overcome an inept performance by Mike Bloomberg on the stump if he continues to falter in the debate Tuesday in South Carolina and if he makes other gaffes between now and March 10th. These these, these presidential elections are really centered around momentum. So Iowa was a debacle, and it hurt Sanders because Sanders actually did better than Buttigieg on the first round by about 6,000 votes. Uh, The headline should have been out of Iowa that that Sanders wins, but there's no headline other than they were inept coming out of there. Now, even though it was a close race, much closer than the polling showed in New Hampshire, nevertheless, Sanders comes out of there and then moves way ahead in um, Nevada. Now, in Nevada, uh, Biden had led for a long time. In the most recent polls, Sanders was ahead by... Uh, almost two to one, 30 to 16 over Biden. And uh, Steyer was actually doing pretty well in Nevada. I think as a result of her debate performance, Elizabeth Warren may do better in Nevada, and that may cut into uh, Sanders. But if Sanders comes out of Nevada with a big lead, then we move into South Carolina where momentum carries him and where uh, Biden is really, that's his firewall. Biden's firewall is is South Carolina. 60% of the voters in South Carolina are African-Americans. Biden traditionally has done very well with blacks. And so if he doesn't do well in South Carolina, Biden is done. And then where do the moderates go? The uh, moderates are either going to go after Klobuchar, Buttigieg, or they may go for Bloomberg. But, boy, having seen Bloomberg on the stage, uh, having trouble answering the questions regarding uh, the... uh, uh, NDAs as well, not disclosure agreements with women, uh, uh, getting hammered by the statements that he made uh, regarding, uh, uh, as Lewis Warren said, horse-faced lesbians or fat broads, he's in trouble. <laughs> well, we got to wrap this up, Steve. We could keep going. We're just getting started, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time on this segment. But thank you so much, Steve Mitchell. President of Mitchell Research and Communications. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, my friend. Always good to talk to you, Bill. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are really lucky to have with us on the other line uh, Senator Ruth Johnson, who is a Republican from Groveland Township in northwestern Oakland County. Senator Johnson, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Bill. You know, you've represented so many constituencies over the years. uh, It's hard to keep track of them over the last three decades. I mean, you were a county commissioner in Oakland County. You were a state representative in Oakland County. Then you were elected countywide in Oakland County. Uh, you run for lieutenant governor, then you were elected secretary of state, you served eight years, now you're in the state senate in your 14th senate district, I think includes 
uh, portion of uh, southern Genesee County. You've got like uh, Fenton and Grand Blanc and something like uh, five Genesee County townships. And then you've got seven townships in northwestern Oakland, including Waterford, which is pretty big, right? Yes. Well, I was born and raised in Waterford and just sold my childhood home two years ago. Wow. Well, look, you are one of the preeminent experts on Michigan voting, and we obviously have had some challenges as a result of the passage in November of 2018 of what is called Proposal 3. What is going on? What has happened since then, and what are we challenged with going into the presidential primary on March 10th? And then, of course, we've got the primary statewide in August and the general election in November. Yes, and always our general elections, we have many more people vote. So to get any kind of legislation through to help the clerks and at the same time protect the integrity of our ballots and make sure no one's disenfranchised by any kind of errors, um, I do have another bill that we uh, were able to get through the election committee that I chair in the Senate and now it's going to the floor. And I think both of them are key to protect integrity. But at the same time, we have to give the clerks, which there's 1,635 clerks and 30,000 precinct workers who are truly patriots. Uh, we have to help them because we probably will have many more um, absentee people that vote by the absentee ballot, which means they have to be taken out of two envelopes, uh, they have to be registered, then they have to be flattened out, and then they have to be sent through the same machine if someone were to come in. And it might not sound like a mu- much, but you have some of the bigger uh, communities that might have 60,000, 100,000 of those, and just opening 100,000 envelopes is a bit overwhelming. So we did two things. One is uh, my dad used to work at Chrysler, and he had kind of an odd shift, and it worked for them. So we're hoping to pattern it after that, the first bill would allow the clerks in local communities that have uh, 10,000 or more voters, so they might be getting 5,000 absentee uh, voters, maybe more, uh, all the way up to 100,000. They would um, simply be able to um, run shifts. So the first shift, when they come in already under current law, they usually come in around 6 o'clock to set up the machines in the morning because the polls open at 7. This is they on close. Election Day itself, on Election Day right. itself. Right, so yeah. they close then um, at 8 o'clock at night. We would still require those workers to be sequestered just like they are now. They can't have a cell phone and they have to stay there. But after the election's over, we're allowing clerks to run shifts because we will have more absentee voters. So I think that will help. And then the other one is... There's two envelopes, and absentee comes back to the clerk in, and uh, one of the other laws, it w- or bill, it's not a law yet, it would allow them to open the first envelope and um, never pull out the ballot and never see the ballot, but just getting that outer envelope out will save a lot of time. That plus the shifts, I think, will help us get the results back in an accurate way. You can't sequester somebody for 30 or 40 hours uh, right now, if we have a lot of absentees and expect them to ever come back. And that's 30,000 people that really don't get anything more than a stipend. So we need to make sure that they're accurate. When you get tired, you make mistakes. So I think those two bills together are going to really help with uh, with the proposal. Yeah, I think the 
absentee ballot requests as a result of the passage of Proposal 3 two years ago are up something like 70 percent from 2016. So there's going to be this avalanche of absentee ballots coming into these clerks. Are you concerned that when it gets to, let's say, the presidential primary on March 10th, that we're going to end up almost in an Iowa-like situation where they're just not going to be able to count the votes in time to figure out who won? And Well, I think that's why I have these two bills, because the clerks do need these tools, and they still uh, protect the integrity of the ballots, and I think it's important. So uh, it still has a little further to go. We have to pass it on the Senate floor, and then we have to get it through the House uh, so that we don't have a situation where people might have to wait for days or weeks, depending on how many people vote absentee. It's a very difficult job. Our clerks are local home rule. They're the ones that conduct them. If we were like most states, we'd have 83 clerks, but we have about 500 school districts. We have county commissions. We have all kinds of uh, all kinds of things that make us have up to 5,000 ballot styles in Michigan. It's far different than the other states, far harder. But I do like the local control because if your clerk's not doing their job, you can make a change there. Yeah, as I understand it, absentee ballots can be processed in one of two ways, at each precinct, and you've described that, or in an absent voter counting board. And over in the State House of Representatives, uh, Representative Julie Kelly just got a bill passed and sent over to the Senate uh, saying that communities uh, can team up with other nearby communities or the county to establish what's called an absentee counting board that would be separate from all these clerks working in the precinct. What about that? Is that going to... Well, most most of the clerks already um, have a separate absentee counting board in the larger communities, which makes it um, much easier for them. We're so eclectic in Michigan. There's only seven people that live in one of the townships in the Upper Peninsula all the way down to our larger cities and Waterford Township, where I came from, they have 73,000 people that live there. We're very eclectic. So uh, one size doesn't always fit all. And for some people, having that separate absentee counting board works very, very well for them. But don't forget, in every community, if it has a high density, you can have many different ballot styles because the school's there's 27 school districts alone in Oakland County, and the school districts don't really mimic the lines of the townships or cities often. So that's a lot of different ballot styles, too. But we have the capability now, as long as we can make sure that we have citizens that can watch the process, both Democrat and Republicans, and I think that's really key to everything. And that's why we're making sure that we're doing it only during certain times, like on Monday, you will... The bill, my bill would allow you to pre-process, and then many clerks, it may be helpful to have absentee counting boards, but you have to be careful. You don't try to you know, legislate from the ivory tower, so to speak, if you don't really understand that we have a township as small as um, you know, seven people all the way up to our large cities. So I like clerks to be able to make a lot of decisions themselves for many clerks that's voting um, precinct for them is it works out really well 
Yeah, well, none of this is going to happen, though, the improvements in your bills by March 10th, right? I mean, the best we can hope for is that maybe they're in place for the August primary and or the general election, correct? Yes, we'll have our biggest turnout, and it's always very large. Michigan has always been the 11th highest in voting for a number of years. And we, uh, a few years ago, we were named by USA Today as the number one state for getting people registered. So we usually have a very robust uh, election for a presidential, and then I think we will probably get more than usual in this election coming up in November. That's the hardest one for the clerks, is the presidential general. That's when you have the highest amount of people that come to the polls or send in absentee ballots. Now, some are predicting as many as 6 million, maybe over that, turning out this coming November in Michigan. Incredible. Let me just turn to another issue related to the Secretary of State which you were for eight years, and that is um, branch office security. Uh, But you know what? We're out of time on this segment, so let's pick that up when we come back in just a minute. Stay tuned with Senator Ruth Johnson. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Senator Ruth Johnson, Republican of Groveland Township in northwestern Oakland County. And I had just asked her at the break about security in the branch offices where you get your driver's license. Uh, Your successor, Jocelyn Benson, as Secretary of State, is complaining that there have been some somewhat scary outbreaks of violence and very poor behavior in these branch offices. She's even asked for $790,000 for five pilot programs for uniformed officers to be in these branch offices. She claims this has been going on for years, but it's never been reported until now. Uh, Did you find that to be the incredible problem that it's come to be in the last year under Jocelyn Benson? Well, we we always reported on my entire retired state police officer, and he did a great job for uh, fraud prevention and security and those kinds of things. So, um, you know, my theory is 94% of the people are just really great people. Um, You do have some people that uh, on occasion, maybe they lost their driver's license, so they get very, very mad, or, uh, you know, maybe the paperwork they brought in wasn't the right one, or or the fee is higher than they thought because the fees were raised 20% in 2017, and so sometimes you'll have people that will act out. There's no doubt about it. We already have uh, we already had security guards in, in many of our busier branches when I was Secretary of State. And I also, the first thing I did was add cameras. There was cameras in some of our offices, but I put them in every single one, security cameras, to de- just to deter that kind of behavior. And we make them very prominent. And we also have some that aren't, so that we make sure people can't figure out where exactly to stand. But um, we went after that full force, and um, and you do on occasion have somebody that will act up. Having said that, our staff was named the second best staff in the state of Michigan by U of M when I was there. They do a very good job. They've taught how to get people to de-escalate, and so we had some isolated um, situations, and I was um, threatened numerous times especially when you send a letter to someone because 
after they'd been picked up by law enforcement and the judge ruled that their license is null and void, they would get a letter from our office. But that's just part of um, the job when I was there. So so I'm not sure. It sounds like rather than having um, the guards that we have now, and by the way, they're fabulous. They're like one of our staff. They'll say, come on in. Did you bring your paperwork for that? And then the busiest branches, when I went to them, they were like kind of like an extra staff and a huge deterrent being a security guard. Right. Absolutely. Well, look, we could talk about that much more, but you got some other issues. You're a state senator. You cover the waterfront in terms of issues you have to deal with. What are some other things you're concerned about? I think one of my biggest concerns right now is uh, the governor removed $7.5 million that we had in the budget to simply make sure people know that their water may be contaminated. We have that data through the, it's called Eagle now, used to be called the DEQ. So if anyone goes under Eagle, they're kind of difficult to read, but I give uh, Eagle a lot of credit. They've um, really done a good job mapping the contamination that we know. Unfortunately, for those of us that are in wells, which is 25% more than any other state in the country, um, nobody's telling us. Somebody said, well, the CDC says you're supposed to test your water every year, but for what? You might be near a leaking underground storage tank, and they know what's in it and what's leaking. If you don't ask for that specific test, you'll never find out. And probably the biggest one that's impacted the state of Michigan is natural occurring arsenic. It's all over the country. Uh, Michigan is named one of the worst in the nation, and uh, It's all the way from the UP, all the way down the Thumb area, down to Genesee and Oakland have tested the highest, but um, over half the geographic area of Michigan should be testing for arsenic, and they simply aren't told. And It's not like we're sitting together and say, hey, uh, you want to go on the computer and say, "Mm, let's look up arsenic. Let's see. People don't know to do that. And so we know from... um, the scientific data and also from a report that was commissioned by Carmanos and Blue Cross uh, that the arsenic in the water is not only a very strong uh, carcinogen, but they also say in this report that there's an estimated 230,000 people in southeast Michigan that's exposed to arsenic in the wells that's above what um, the EPA, EPA level is. And it is a very serious carcinogen, but it causes neurological effects. And new information shows that it also causes babies' brains not to uh, form properly sometimes. Hypertension, vascular disease, heart disease, diabetes, malignancies. Uh, it's been linked to cancer of bladder, lung, skin, kidney, nasal passages, liver, prostate. It's a nasty chemical. At no level is it good for you. But what I am so disappointed about is that very few people know that they should test for arsenic. For that fact, they they aren't even informed if they live next to a leaking underground storage tank to test their water. Or we do have some radium radon nitrates uh, are very prevalent in Michigan, and they call, cause blue baby syndrome. And both arsenic and nitrates, if you boil it, you concentrate it. So here you have these moms that are boiling water if they're making formula or oatmeal or whatever for their kids, and it actually concentrates some of those things. There's many different other kinds of contaminants. Those are two really big ones in Michigan, and I think we've really fallen down on our job, and I consider it morally wrong 
not to simply let people know so they can test. I have reverse osmosis in two places in my house. You can bathe in it. It won't hurt you. Uh, You can wash your clothes in it. But long-term ingestion is a very severe health hazard, and our state has failed to let people know. Well, you say Governor Whitmer vetoed funds that would have allowed for, you know, checking on this condition that you've described. Has she put that back in her budget for this coming year? Is the legislature going to put it back in? What's going on? Well, on October 3rd, I walked a letter over to her and um, asked her. uh, And with the report that Blue Cross helped commission and then also Blue Cross paid for – doctors to be taught to look at this whole string of maladies because a lot of doctors don't know, didn't know, but uh, unfortunately a lot of them still don't know that this could be signs of long-term arsenic ingestion. Even at the lower levels, they found that it causes very serious health issues. And just in southeast Michigan, the report says 230,000 of us, and I was one of them, that was drinking water with arsenic in it, and I just plain didn't know it. And I found out from a constituent years ago and she was uh, raising her voice at me and throwing her finger into my face because everyone in her family was sick. Well, uh, I certainly didn't know about it, but Eagle's got all the data on it now. People should go on um, that site and look up their county to find out what's in it so that they can have it tested. It can be done by a private lab or by the lab at the state of Michigan. But if you tested for everything, which I did once at my house just to... uh, get an idea how all of this works. Uh, It's much more than it used to be. It was about $500. Now, if you add PFAS in and some of the other things, people should not have to pay $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 to test their water every year when we simply have the maps already that tell you what we have found already by all the well testing we've done for many years. We can test some more wells. We need to let people know. And I just can't tell you what a moral gap I see from the state of Michigan by not telling people. And, of course, babies, uh, kids, and elderly are often more impacted than others. But all of us are impacted. Well, Senator, did Governor Whitmer get your message? Did she put this funding back in the budget for this coming year or not? Well, she responded, so she got it. Uh, And... um, She urged me to get the Senate Majority Leader to do some things that she wanted to be able to put the money back in. But I I don't think you leverage on people's health, the quantity and quality of their life. And uh, they haven't come to total agreement on road funding. I think that's a problem right now where she wants to borrow money when we... We had $400 million extra in the budget. In 2017, we raised gas, $0.07. Cents. We raised diesel, $0.11. Cents. All that new money's coming in, plus we tried to give an extra $400 million, and she uh, she vetoed that. And for the purpose, it looks like that she's talking about um, borrowing $3.5 billion. Which is going to go to state roads, not local roads. Well, I think that's one of the biggest problems, Bill. You're you're right on the mark there. It's our local roads that are in the worst shape, not our state roads. So you're borrowing money, and the commercial says, and it costs nothing. That's not true. When you borrow $3.5 billion, you're paying interest on it. And we did that before. In the past, you'd have thought we'd learned from it. A third of our money for roads was going for interest rather than our roads, and our roads had deteriorated before we had the loans paid off. Well, listen, we could 
continue on. There's so much to talk about. We're very lucky to have had Senator Ruth Johnson, Republican of the Holly area in northwestern Oakland County. Thank you so much, Senator Ruth Johnson, for being our guest. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back next week.